Today's episode of the Film Stage Show is brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema. For your free 30-day trial, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Back, ladies and gentlemen, to a brand new episode of the Film Stage Show, the movie review podcast for thefilmstage.com. As always, I am your host, Brian J. Rowan. With me today, we have Michael Snydell. I'm hoping you did uh, I Wear My Sunglasses at Night for the end song, at least, Brian. We could all start laying down bets on what I chose for the end song. <laughs> we also have Bill Graham. And with us here today for a classic review of the Martin Scorsese film Bringing Out the Dead, it's Maddie Whittle. Hello. How are you today, Maddie? I'm fine. Thank you so much for having me. Very happy to be here. Thank you for joining us. Uh, would you like to take this moment to tell the fine people at home a little bit about yourself? Sure. <clears throat> I am a uh, member of the programming team at Film at Lincoln Center, uh, currently closed due to the coronavirus crisis. Um, our theaters are closed, but we very much active online. We have a virtual screening room where you can um, rent some of the films that we would have been putting out in our theaters uh, to stream them at home. Uh, So definitely check that out if you want a taste of our programming anywhere in the country. Uh, And I also write occasionally for uh, Film Comment magazine and uh, the Brooklyn Rail uh, and do various other little things, but they're not worth getting into. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is a pleasure to have you here. Um, we are, of course, in the midst of the coronavirus outbreak or whatever the hell we're calling this thing, doing classic reviews, and uh, we tied it into something that's been going on on our Patreon Slack. Uh, if you'd like to become a patron, go to patreon.com slash show. You get access to our Slack channel, and the guys and gals over there uh, decided to set up a special channel where they would every week decide on one movie. I think it's like a petty dictatorship, right? Like there's a person selected and then that person gets to select the movie and then everyone watches it. And then by like Saturday at three o'clock or something, it's like open season on spoilers in the channel. Yeah. The last few, uh, you know, I'm not going to say the last few, uh, choices in recent past. (laughs) There's only like three of them. Anyway, I think this is like six or seven. Uh, yeah, our listeners might keep up with it better than we do. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the Gear Breathless was one of, that was done recently. Um, a uh, da, 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 da. Bubba we did Hotep. Bubba Hotep yeah. first, and um, uh, oh, and Message from the King. So we have been all over the place in terms of picks. And then so, you put out a poll for yours. I did. I, I asked people to choose between uh, a bittersweet life, Southern comfort, and bringing out the dead. And I pretty much stacked the deck there. <laughs> There's no way anybody was going to pick those those other worthy choices. There was but. a moment where it was tied, but I lobbied hard for bringing out the dead uh, <laughs> because it's it is it for some for some reason. Maybe it's just like the three night conceit. And the fact that it takes place over a weekend and it's a Martin Scorsese film. I was like, it's an Easter movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's Easter weekend. It's perfect. We have to do it. And uh, so we did. So this is like a nice little tie in for the people who are patrons. Now you get to listen to us talk about one of the movies that was chosen for the Slack Watch. 
Um, before we get into that, the usual stuff, uh, I already plugged our Patreon, but you can find us on Twitter at Film Stage Show, Facebook, The Film Stage Show, email us podcast at thefilmstage.com, and of course, give us a comment and rating on iTunes. We are also brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema, where every day their fantabulous curators bring you a brand new film to watch and enjoy. There's uh, some great stuff on there right now. <laughs> They've got quite a quite a series going on. It's called The Vulgar Disruptor Trauma Restored. So if you have ever wanted to watch some trauma films, uh, for instance, Tromeo and Juliet or Bloodsucking Freaks, those are now streaming on Mubi. Um, last week, we also talked about the fact that you can watch Southland Tales, the Richard Kelly film on movie and is it he he like had a twitter thing where he said like i'd love to make a sequel and all this other stuff uh so this this movie is strangely back in the zeitgeist i don't understand it i saw a bunch of people tweeting about it he did a whole live tweet of it yeah uh, hashtag and everything it's great so you can watch it on movie and then go back to his twitter timeline and uh pretend that you were there for that <laughs> Oh man, um, that's weirdly depressing. Going back to a live tweet and pretending you were there. We are living in a bold new universe right now, Michael Snydell. <laughs> this is just the way things are happening. All right. Uh, we also have a double bill of uh, Belmondo and Melville uh, with Leon Morin Priest and Ledus. And a bunch of other great stuff. So check out Mubi. All you got to do is go to mubi.com slash filmstage for a free 30-day trial. Again, that is mubi.com slash filmstage for a free 30-day trial of Mubi. Uh, before we get into our main review, let's just uh, get the coronavirus update for the week out of the way. Um, I'm still exhausted all the time. From I was talking to a friend the other day. Um, it's a girl that I, it's the girl that I did the, uh, the Tiger King, like live watch text marathon with. And she was saying like, there's a new episode of Tiger King for some reason. It's probably terrible, but we need to watch it together. And I guess I had the audacity to ask her when she was free <laughs> and she <laughs> just laid into me. <laughs> she was like, oh yeah, I'd love to do that. Well, like what days do you have available? And she was like. Oh, I don't know what days work for you. I was like, I could probably make Wednesday night work. And she started going on like, oh, I guess I could spare you an hour on Wednesday, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, you know, if it's really too hard to do Wednesday, like we could do it another day. She was like, what are you talking about? There's nothing <laughs> happening. She thought you were doing a bit. Yeah. And I'm like, no, I'm legitimately exhausted because I just am doing so much right now. And I forget that there are people out there who are bored and maybe can take naps every now and then. Uh, speaking Brian, of which, I think you might need to start to either drop the distillery, the podcast, your day job, or your daughter. Gee, I and wonder I which of those <laughs> won't be getting dropped. <laughs> um. uh, meanwhile, we're trying out a YouTube live for some fucking reason. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I just like, decided. <laughs> I decided to give myself more work. Luckily, it appears as though... Why? Why are we doing this? It appears as though still no one is listening. So that is great news. Um, (laughs) We really should have plugged it more if we really wanted this to be a true test. Um, But yeah, I'm I'm still doing the distillery thing. I'm still making hand sanitizer. 
You can still go to SchmidtSpirits.com to give to our GoFundMe. I am I am just completely exhausted. How is everyone else doing? Maddie, as our guest, uh, you know, we already talked about um the fact that you're are you furloughed on hiatus? Like what is your situation? I am uh one of the lucky ones. I am uh still employed and working from home. Oh, that's great. Um, it, which is uh, I it's especially uh I feel especially fortunate because uh, we at Film at Lincoln Center did have to furlough a bunch of staff and, and laid off some staff as well, which was really, really shitty. And uh, I uh, feel just uh, very privileged to get to keep doing my job, even, you know, from a distance. And it's, it's a little funny because we our theaters are closed and my work is in programming and programming involves putting things on the screen in your theaters. And so since we don't really know how long we're going to be closed for, it's a very strange time um, figuring mm-hmm. out like programming, like a virtual screening room or programming festivals online or preparing for different scenarios of when we might reopen. So it's very strange, but I'm uh, enjoying working from home and trying to make the most of it. So. Awesome. Yes. Yeah, the other yeah. thing I constantly forget is that other people aren't used to working from home. Yeah. Truly my life <laughs> was like my entire life was just building up to prepare me for this stupid <laughs> situation and the quarantine and everything. And I am just having so much trouble like empathizing with other people for whom this is all new. Correct. Speaking of which, Michael Snydell, how are you doing? <laughs> I don't know, Brian. Can you spare a little empathy for me? I can uh, try, but Um, you know, I'm I'm all right. Uh as I as I mentioned, I'm looking for something new right now. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I I will say it took a pandemic for me to catch up with a few people, which (laughs) probably doesn't reflect super well on me, but, uh, yeah, it's good to talk to a few people. Um, me, me and my partner, we're doing fine. We're not ready to kill each other yet or anything. Uh, we're good on the true test. We're good on toilet paper. We had something that we ordered nearly a month ago that actually just arrived a week ago. So oh, we hey. are full up on rice, let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> rice and pasta, we're good on. I don't know how long we're going to be able to get uh, cartons of eggs, but we'll take that as it comes. <laughs> oh, that reminds me. Camera Watch 2020 still goes on. I have no idea when or if I'm getting my new camera. <laughs> The That's, important things. I know. The essential. The essential. Yes. <laughs> it's terrible. Um, what about you, Bill Graham? Uh, not much has changed. Uh, just continuing to work outside for some fucking reason. Um, <laughs> and yeah, just uh, just trucking along. Um, that's about it. No, well, nothing. That's nothing much has changed. I've just uh, yeah, just trying to stay on top of things. I finally got to do one of the Slack watches because we do, we're doing a podcast on it. So <laughs> I get to enjoy that, that kind of little camaraderie that's going on. I think uh, I'm going to get together with some friends, probably do like a, I know uh, uh, the, the, the dreaded Z word, um, probably going to do a call with them and then uh, maybe do I like a movie. Quickly everyone was like, Oh, there's something other than Skype. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, my company has been using something called Blue Jeans for a while, and 
Like hmm. now, now I have access to blue jeans where I could potentially set that up for like some of my friends. And I'm like, maybe we should do that. It feels a little bit more secure. Uh, but yeah, I think what we're going to do is we're going to watch a movie. We're all going to start it at the same time. I think there's some way to, to like sync up uh, a Netflix movie across like multiple accounts or something like that. We might try that. I'll have to Google foo that. And then uh, we'll probably have like an intermission break at the halfway point of whatever movie we choose and then play some, some games, catch up with each other and then finish off the movie. All right. That's involving. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm i I'm also, I just like one of the, you know, you keep seeing on like um, social media, like these things of like, you know, which, which ones are you? And then it's like eight options. And it's always like, you know, are you drunk all the time? Are are we talking about which Tiger King character are you? (laughs) No, oh, they don't usually, they don't usually like, I don't know. There's probably one that does Tiger King, Has, but I, I think it's good that like, it sounds like we're all keeping busy because a lot of them are like very depressing. They're like, you know, are you the person who's drunk all the time? Like, you know, screaming at your walls. And it's like, I feel like I'm doing something wrong if I'm not doing any of these things. I think, I think honestly, the, the worst of of anyone that has it out there i think the people that are in the worst shape right now are probably the service industry people mm-hmm. who just like literally do not have a job and cannot go to work like they yeah. they just don't have that option and i think they're probably sitting here uh waking up at normal hours and being like what the fuck is going on right now i don't even understand so i think uh you know it's a it's good to be employed but also it's good to just kind of stay busy just for for your mental sake um i know when i do not have things to do a lot of times i'll slack off and then like eight hours will disappear and i'll look up and i'll be like oh shit it's time to eat dinner i haven't eaten in 12 hours what what the hell just happened and yeah you feel super unproductive throughout your day um it's good to kind of have a schedule and kind of sit to it um even if you're unemployed even if you're going through some stuff uh, a schedule some kind of structure really really helps so yeah absolutely Speaking of structure, let's move on to the next aspect of our podcast, which of course Ooh. is the reason that everyone is presumably here, and that is to listen to us talk about and the movie. All Bring our you- listeners, yes, live. We have apparently three. <laughs> Whoa! What? Whoa! I know, oh, man. I'm, I'm a little nervous. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't screw it up. Why you just have went to down to two? Oh, thank God. <laughs> No, it didn't. They're still all here. Oh, God. All right. All right. They're not saying anything in the live chat. Um, (laughs) If you are, in fact, listening to this and you have the ability to chat at us, say what's up. Let us know how you're doing. (laughs) Say what's up to Brian, you mean? Yes, I will be the only one who can see it. Um, So, yeah, that's uh, that's that. Uh, Now it's time for our feature review, which, again, is Bringing Out the Dead, the 1999 film from director Martin Scorsese based on the novel by Joe Connolly. With a screenplay by the inimitable Paul Schrader. Bill, were you going to say something? Uh, I said, holy fuck, uh, that, this movie's from 1999. It feels like it's from 1989. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's one of the things I love about it. Um, we'll talk about it, but it opens with a thing that says this film takes place in New York in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. But it definitely feels like it is like the late 70s. Uh, yeah. But again, we will talk about it. Uh, this movie f- stars Nicolas Cage. As a paramedic in New York City, in I believe the Hell's Kitchen neighborhood, 
over the course of three nights, uh, slowly losing his mind and losing his faith in his ability to do his job and in a life in general. And here is the trailer. Six too young is here, baby. <laughs> and I'm going to take care of you. Thursday started out with a bang. Heat, humidity, moonlight, all the elements in place for a long weekend. I was good at my job. There were periods when my hands moved with the speed and skill beyond me. How long have you been doing this? Five years. Wow, you must have seen some things, huh? All right, so that is the trailer for Bringing Out the Dead. One of the, I guess you'd say, lesser known, the the lower tier, uh, awareness-wise, Martin Scorsese films, uh, and we're here to talk about it. So we will begin, this is a classic review, we're going to begin with our basic uh, nutshell thoughts, basically whether you thought it was good or bad, and brief thoughts, and then we're going to dive full on into spoilers, so not too much time in the spoiler-free section. So let's do it. Maddie. What are your thoughts on bringing out the dead? I was pretty bowled over by this movie. I, uh, full disclosure, uh, had not seen it before about a week ago. Um, I It was one of the Scorsese films that I was just sort of only vaguely aware of. Just sort of like, I, I knew it existed, but I didn't really know much about it. Um, and in the last year or two, I'd started to see people talk about it on Twitter and kind of championing it and, and showing some love for it. Um, and I just never got around to watching it um, until about a week ago. Um, my boyfriend and I were scrolling on uh, options and it came up and neither one of us had seen it, it turned out. And so uh, we kind of went in blind, at least I did. Um, and I just, I just loved it. I mean, it's sort of, I'm sure we'll get into this, but it felt a lot like taxi driver meets after hours meets Nicolas Cage. And that combination <laughs> is just, I mean, what more could you want? It's, uh, it's, it, it sort of lives up to that promise. Um, and it's very dark and it's very, moving to watch in this time in particular, both when I'm, I live in New York and uh, I, I live in Brooklyn and work in Manhattan and I've been, been in Manhattan for several weeks now. Uh, and this movie just sort of captured something about midtown Manhattan that just really was very familiar to me, even though obviously New York has changed a lot since the early 90s when the movie is set and from the late 90s when the movie was made, but it's still New York and being, you know, I, I it was very um, sort of startling just to be in this very immersive depiction of the city. And also it's about he's saving lives and not saving lives. And right now when our, uh, you know, when, when our emergency response, uh, personnel around the city are basically uh, being even more heroic than they are in the normal lines of their jobs. Um, it just, it was really, um, I think, very, very special to watch right now. Yeah, All right. that's my, that's my take. Bill Graham. Yeah, uh, I hadn't really heard of this movie. Uh, I was surprised to find that um, it, it involved uh, Nicolas Cage, um, and uh, actually, you know, a hell of a of a supporting cast as well around it. Um, I 
I found this film really interesting in just uh, the, the way that it kind of moves about its its story and um, it kind of goes in surprising directions at times. Um, there was a lot of things that I wasn't expecting, um, not least of which, you know, it, it's always fun to watch these kind of movies Um particularly if you haven't seen it or you haven't seen it in a while, just to see like young, sexy Ving Rhames at the top of his game. And just like, you're just like, Oh, this is where he gets all that swagger from. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, I honestly thought it was a young Billy or a, a older Billy D Williams at first. I was just like, who is this guy? I was like, I didn't know Billy D Williams was in it. Cause he, he has kind of the, the wavy hair and, uh, he's, he's chomping on a cigar, which I guess now is not like a, a thing that Ving Graham's is like his characters do. It's just something that he does, I think, <laughs> maybe. Um, he, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure Scorsese might have been like, can can you take, does it, do we get Ving Graham's without that? And he's just like, nope. No, he's like, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, no, this, this film is actually quite interesting. Um, I think if you know anything about Nicolas Cage, you know his he has a penchant for kind of unhinged performances, and you you slowly get to see that as this film progresses, but it it like teases it out at you, uh, which is a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I, I quite enjoyed this film. Um, if I'm not mistaken uh the the writer paul schrader he's he also wrote uh taxi driver if yes. i'm not mistaken um which of course was another collaboration with scorsese um but he he like did some on the ground like research like he spent years with either taxi drivers or ems drivers didn't he he was a like, taxi driver he was a taxi driver Okay. I have that correct, yeah. right? Someone please back me up on that. I'm pretty sure that's right, but I don't have it in front of me. <laughs> Anyways, I, I think I think this definitely comes from a a line of like actually knowing what they're talking about. Um, even like the EMS stuff, uh, you know, I've taken a CPR course and stuff like that, and just seeing them actually like perform CPR was actually like, oh, they're 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 not just like just doing whatever they're they're actually doing like an actual technique and and it was interesting so yeah no i i i enjoyed this film is it lesser scorsese perhaps is it harder to enjoy perhaps but i mean you know people enjoy taxi driver so <laughs> you know there's there's always this oh all right michael snydell yeah you know this was one i i knew about a, a little bit but uh I mean, it's weird that Bill, yeah, I believe it was Bill that you mentioned that you thought it was in the you know late 80s or late 70s because there is – it was a little bit strange, you know, trying to locate it in the late 90s. I mean, I, I mean we could – it's it's pretty old news that, uh, you know, Scorsese, he had quite a run, um, you know, for decades. But it, it is still fascinating to me, not only the ways this connects to things like After Hours and uh, Taxi Driver and, you know, these these films about people who are just at their wits end in this just 
you know, this maze that seems like it's never going to end. And, you know, that could say, you could say that's the entire MO for a lot of Schrader's work, you know, um, from everything from first reform to last temptation to, uh, affliction and, you know, all over his career. So I, this was really fascinating to me because it is very much a Schrader script in the sense that sometimes it's extremely blunt in its religious, uh, <laughs> religious, religious imagery, religious, uh, illusions, et cetera, you know, or from characters names to, you know, just literal vir- virgin births. So, um, that stuff was it it wasn't necessarily unsurprising but it was really fascinating for me and very rewarding to see Scorsese just really uh dig deep into that uh into that milieu that, you know that sacred that obsession with the sacred and profane constantly going at each other and i think what's interesting about bringing out the dead is that it is it is a pretty abrasive uh abrasive film like down to the narration which i really want to really want to talk about because it is i i think for a film that nearly has a constant soundtrack and the sound design is you know constantly trying to bring you into the city with with different ambiance and things like that it's also a film that like punctuates like brief moments of silence with this like never-ending monologue and i think it's it's really fascinating in damn it i said that right it's uh just really i i i understand that that monologue is from Connolly's book but it's still something that's relatively confusing to me as like this feels like a film uh, you know, other than it coming from Schrader and that being one of his favorite things, this feels like a film that could very easily get along without the monologue and without that uh, running voiceover, which is, again, not a criticism, but rather something that I find the textures here uh, so emotional and so physical uh, from moment to moment that I could totally see how someone could find this a difficult watch and why it gets compared to, you know, like contemporaries like the Safties or something. So, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. The the cast is absolutely ridiculous in this movie. <laughs> um, like, I don't even know where to start. Like, I mean, his three, from... his three uh, partners throughout the course of the movie are yeah. John Goodman, Ving Rhames, Goodman. Tom Sizemore. Then you've got Mark Anthony as Noel. I did not recognize him whatsoever until the end credits. And I was like, where was Mark Anthony? <laughs> <laughs> and then you've got Patricia Arquette. Yes. And then um, just to throw him out, because I, I feel like uh, I talked about my deep abiding love for this man uh, in Dr. Sleep. You got Cliff Curtis. Yes. Yes. As that wonderful, uh, the friend of Ewan McGregor. Um, yeah. And, I, sorry, and then you've also got you've got perennial that guy, Nestor Serrano, as the doctor. <laughs> and Ida Tarturo as a, a nurse. Right? Yes. She's and the one who's that. constantly like hateful towards everyone, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sonia Sohn from The Wire and Michael K. Williams. You have Queen Latifah That's as right. the wonderful love. Is that right? Yes. 
yeah, as love on the dispatcher, love like. Also, you oh, got uh, Martin Scorsese himself. Yes, I, I guess last thing I w- just briefly want to say is yeah, Nicolas Cage. Uh, you know, I mean, speaking of kind of the changing tides of the internet, like it's been a lot of people uh, finding like legitimate grace and beauty in Cage's career and and not just focusing on, you know, the underpinnings of like that manic persona. And I think in this, um, you know, he does eventually rev up, but when he does, it never feels like a ploy to me. And that's that's what I think is so impressive. Like he's such a he's such a manic depressive character in this. But like there is such a kind of like narcotic warmth to him. Like he's a sad sack and he's, you know, probably borderline suicidal, but he's not someone who y- you feel that energy with. There's a certain like presence that he has with everyone that's just really mesmerizing uh so yeah i talked way too much but yeah this is a good movie and i'm looking forward to talking about it i will continue the the love train i love this movie this movie's great every time that people say like oh i never saw that movie or i didn't even know that movie existed it blows my mind because i love this movie and have pretty much since it came out um which is i don't know why i saw this movie so young but I did. I, it was that it was that magical golden year of 1999. Um, I was 12 years old. I was really starting to pay attention to stuff. Um, you know, the Thin Red Line, Matrix, all that. All, like, you know, we literally there's an entire book about it. What a great year that was. Mm-hmm. Brian Raftery. Yeah. Yes. Is uh, 1999. Yep. And um, and we talked with him. Uh, you could find that interview on this uh, news or this news feed, this <laughs> this uh, podcast feed. <laughs> Um, yeah, and I, I just remember seeing this movie and being like, ooh, that looks amazing. And I didn't know why. And it just clearly it, there was some nascent part of my being that was like, oh, this is a movie about a man stricken with grief, unable to like affect any real meaningful change in the lives of the people he's supposed to help, who is driven slowly insane by his impotence. That's just me. I'm just gonna, <laughs> I will eventually live that life. So I might as well get to loving this movie. Um, and yeah, I, I saw it. I loved it. I, I have the strangest memory and I wish I had remembered to ask my mother about this. We used to go to a, um, a town called Harbor Springs, Michigan for like a week in the middle of the summer. And there was one of those like independent video stores there. And I guess she had seen the movie and was talking with the man at the counter about it. And like they were talking about Scorsese and she <laughs> said something like, what do you think of Bring Out the Dead? And he just had this look on his face like he had no idea what to say about it, <laughs> um, which I can get. It's a uh, it's it's not a movie, even though it feels a lot like Taxi Driver at times. It is not a movie like Taxi Driver that is like moving with freight train like momentum towards like an obvious confrontation. It's it's a very weirdly mellow kind of tone poem i hate to say that and i'm sorry that i just did but there's something very lived in about it that just i i i watch this movie like once a year when i just need to feel what only this movie provides and it's the kind of thing that reminds me of some of the best and worst nights in my life Mm. where you just feel like the universe is fucking with you Mm. um 
you know, uh, things things like, you know, the virgin birth where you're just like, I don't know. I have like I just have to roll with this. Like this is all I've got going on right now. <laughs> um him going and yelling at the homeless man who who did the worst suicide attempt that he'd ever seen. I mean, there's just so you many You have to go across, not or what what is it? You have to go down, down not across. Yeah. yeah you feel that pulse? That's what you want to do. And then he's got I looked it up uh because it's it's a it's a great quote. Oh, I see. With all the poor people in the city who wanted only to live and were viciously murdered, you have the nerve to sit here wanting to die and not go through with it. You make me sick. Jeez. It's it's this is like it's it's that kind of like beaten, frustrated Schrader Scorsese continuum that just like there's nothing else like it when it hits right. And um yeah, I don't know. Between the the vibe the the grit the 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 acting the writing everything I mean it's just I I love coming back to this movie and seeing it and I'm so excited that we have this podcast and it forced some people to watch it and um, also the soundtrack is amazing incredible soundtrack yeah I um after watching the movie I I like started listening to the Clash a lot and um I was listening to Janie Jones in the car with my daughter and. Again, my daughter every once in a while will have to chime in with her opinions on a song when it's over. And this is one of the ones where she said, Dad, that was a great song. I said, yes, yes, Cora, it is. (laughs) And it was repetitive enough that like on the last kind of like chorus, she was able to like babble along with it. And I was like, no, I get it because I don't even know what the lyrics are. But yes, so this movie rules, and I can't wait to talk about it. There's so much going on. Maybe too much? I don't know that it like is as complete and, uh, I don't know, I'll use a Michael Snydell term, not as neat as it should be, or maybe like, to, really, to really land everything. But I think that as the kind of hodgepodge amalgam of, of themes and ideas that it is, it is utterly thrilling and super fulfilling. So, yeah, I guess... No, I, I, this hasn't occurred to me before, but I think this might be one of the truly greatest examples of neo-noir that we have. Like, it's just, it hmm. feels like a role made for Bogart that, you know, because Bogart's not around anymore, Nick Cage is the closest thing the 90s had to that role. And I, I, I don't know where that's, I don't know where that conviction is coming from in me, but it just, it's it, something about the nihilism and sort of the, and also with the, the voiceover, the, the narration, it mm-hmm. just, when, when, when Michael was talking about that, it just, it feels like, like a Sam Spade character or something like, you know, sure. like, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's all. I just love the idea of like, all right, we had bogey. Now we've got Kate. <laughs> <laughs> but i mean like who who honestly though if not cage who is the closest equivalent to bogey that we have i really think it's cage oh, i really think it's the closest we have he does have that kind of laconic oh, okay well you've just derailed the entire podcast because <laughs> now this is all i can think about anyway <laughs> But no, I'm. It, it's it is true. This is, and again, you know, I'm a guy who loves noir. So like this, you know, with its its uh, neon phosphorescent soaked streets with the steam and the and the weird cast of characters that they come across. I I also love that this movie 
on that kind of noir thing you know in noir you've got the the cop on the edge and his like you know uh sergeant who's like this is your last warning and oh, in this sergeant it's, yeah his, 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 his commanding officer <laughs> is the complete opposite of that he's just like he, he barks late. at him yeah he barks <laughs> yes. at it but the best thing is he's like you're late I would fire you, but like, oh, I can't. I love you too much. You're a great guy. I'm going to get... I need you. I yeah, need he's you like, under- I got like four people out sick. I need you. This guy can't work two days in a row. And Nicholas Cage is like, you you swore to me that if I was late again, you'd fire me. You swore. He like hits his desk. And he the guy's does. like, I'll fire you tomorrow. <laughs> it's the greatest thing I've ever seen where it's just that it, it is that constant like you know it's a it's a hacky stand-up thing but it's like why can't you get fired from the jobs that you hate like what is it about those jobs where it's just like i don't know i went in and i punched my boss in the stomach and i got a raise (laughs) i i think that's something too about i i mean why scorsese and, and schrader are sometimes really good bedfellows in the sense that like yeah, like, I, as you're saying, Maddie, like, I'm starting to see that neo-noir uh, point more than what you're saying. But I think what what makes this so much more – I'm now saying that this movie is both palatable and abrasive. But palatable is that it's, like, it's a bouncy nihilism, though. Like, there is a sense of, like – there is a sense of, like, a constant horror and, and like, a, a, you know – a hallucinogenic depression, but it's still, it still knows enough to, as, as Brian, as, as you were saying, like the universe is fucking with me. Like <laughs> it's always a little bit of a troll. And, and I think like, I, I'm sorry, Maddie, go ahead. No, 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 go on. I, and like, I, I think that especially is, is partly what resonated so much in, in people coming to first reformed, which it seemed like for, you know, a long time, uh, the first time in a, since maybe Affliction that, uh, you know, a uh, traitor got coronated as a, as a really good writer of, of that type of, you know, uh, tortured martyr, <laughs> tortured, but very funny <laughs> martyr. <laughs> so it's just, it's, it's fascinating to me how much this, this movie moves and the, you know, you, you describe some of the scenes in this movie in a deadpan way, mm-hmm. and it sounds like it's going to be a lot more arduous than it is. I think that has to do with the, the fact that it's, it captures that sort of bizarre delirium of being up all night, where it's mm-hmm. like you get past a certain point and you're just feeling everything at once and you don't know which way is up, and you don't know where you are, and you don't know if you're happy or sad or angry, and it's just like that's sort of the feeling that this movie creates is 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 of that sort of heady chaotic um roller coaster uh and that's you know i think that the the, the sort of philosophy of this movie is uh has to do with how that sort of like delirium is really how we all relate to death. Like our, our relationship to nighttime is the same as our relationship to death maybe. And like, it, it, it feels like Schrader philosophizing in, in that way, which I guess, you know, Scorsese's direction adds another wrinkle to that. But, um, but yeah, it does. I agree with you that it's, uh, we, we, it feels like a recent 
uh, renewal with First Reform that we're thinking of Paul Schrader as a writer. And uh, I think that's uh, this points to the fact that he's he's always been doing that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This I this this movie is like the perfect distillation of the the kind of delirium of being up all night. Like I can't watch this movie without thinking of like the thirty six hours that I spent in Charleston once, where I <laughs> arrived I arrived there like I don't know early afternoon and didn't go to sleep until like almost noon the next day, and like what are you doing. <laughs> I've I've told you that story before, haven't I? I know. <laughs> so many of your the... stories start and end this way. <laughs> okay, but the Charleston <laughs> one is truly the craziest one. Like that's the like if I were to make if I were to pitch any moment in my life as a movie, like there are a couple. <laughs> like there's like the time that like I saved a guy's life in the wilderness. There's a time that I like was just I don't know out with a bunch of friends after like a friend committed suicide. And then there's Charleston, which clearly the movie would just be named Charleston (laughs) and it would be everything that you'd want it to be. It would truly be like a Scorsese Schrader film. They're like lyrical hallucinatory interludes. Like when uh, I, I stumbled upon a camp of like homeless street performers, one of whom like handed me a rose that he'd like knitted out of pond fronds. I mean, like, it's crazy. No, you're making it's, that up. I swear to God, I'm not making it up. It was this based was, on a true story. Yeah, it's truly based on a true story. And then it would be that type of like asinine thing where it's like based on a true story. Parentheses. Seriously. Parentheses within parentheses. No, honestly, seriously. <laughs> Quit laughing. I see you. All of this shit actually happened. And um, it is, it's just, it's great because you have a lot of movies where they try to get that feeling across and it just doesn't work. But for whatever reason, like this, like the, the time lapse of this movie, like when Janie Jones is playing and you've got him like, you know, just cranking the, uh, the, the gears and, and driving and <laughs> everything zipping by and it all just like, there's just so much to it that just hits so right. And so many of the conversations, like when Nicolas Cage is just nuts and is like, I just need to like destroy something. We need to like hit someone. Like, I don't know why. I just like, I've got to like do something or I'm going to explode. And I'm just like, yeah, Nick, I've been there. I feel that. Um, it's, it's, it's terrible. (laughs) And it's, it's so refreshing to see something like that come across in a movie like this and to be. I don't know. The movie just like wraps you up in this like concrete and chain link blanket of like horror and humor. And again, like you said, it's it's almost like you are set free by the nihilism in this movie. It's like not nothing matters. So why do anything? It's like nothing matters. We should do everything. (laughs) (laughs) And again, just the, the actors they have are great. John Goodman is really fun in in kind of being like the the most normal-ish person uh-huh. in the entire movie. He's the guy who like dreams of moving out to Long Island and taking a captaincy. And then you've got Ving Rames, who seems kind of normal, but is like there's something weird going on under him. I, I do love, however, He's his born whole born again. Yeah, yeah, his whole his whole like uh you gotta pray for I be banging. <laughs> <laughs> that whole scene just made the movie for me it, it truly truly did like i i was like i was like 
after that sequence, I was just like, okay, all right, this <laughs> this movie won me over. I can I can write out whatever the hell it, it dishes out after that. Right, because if the movie <laughs> is capable of doing that, then you know that like no matter what's going on, you're like, well, something else weird like that might be right just around the corner. Mm-hmm. What's well, it's weird you use the the term complete a little bit earlier, Brian, because I think this. This is in almost some ways a more complete screenplay than than Schrader sometimes writes. And, and I, I, I don't mean to belabor Schrader's involvement, but I think that the different sections of New York, this goes to, as, as Cage himself says, this city doesn't discriminate. And neither <laughs> does this movie in the sense of, you know, whether you want to go to the spectrum of, of the of the uh, goth club to you know the the new york equivalent to red light district to the kind of uh family who refuses to leave even as the uh you know even as the uh the street becomes you know more filled with uh, drug dealers and crime in the case of patricia arquette's family like mm-hmm. like i think the extent to which this includes all of these people uh, does feel really complete to me. So even if it doesn't have, you know, some of that, you know, more clean denouements or, or anything like that, I, I think it ultimately like leaves a bigger uh, mark on my memory than some of those. And and I think too, it's it's like I, w- I want to talk about Thelma Schoonmaker. Her editing in this is. I think uh, one of the one of the biggest things that it's it's easy to miss. I, I think, for instance, about I, I think it's one of the first encounters between um, between Patricia Arquette's character and Nicolas Cage. Sorry, let me get the um, the the name of their characters. Why can't I remember their names? Um, Anyways, Frank is Nicholas Cage's character's name. Yes, Frank and then Mary. And Mary. Is, yeah. That's right. Of course, it's Mary. Come on, <laughs> what are you? What are you doing here? Why are we even here? <laughs> Anyways, in one of Frank and Mary's first conversations, I love this this strange cut it does, where it's like this gossamer glow to Robert Richardson's uh, photography, and her face literally switches, like it does a sharp cut. To her face being on the left side, and then a sharp cut to her face being on the right side, and and I think that is like again just goes into the overall rhythm of this film, the way it does those you know city street uh, overhead shots of the ambulance as you know Van Morrison is blaring, and you know just blends into the to the city. It's it's that editing that carries you along as much as the the empathy that they're giving to all of these characters. Like this movie, as, as you're saying, Brian, <laughs> you know, if if we're all going to die, it's not we're doing nothing. We're doing everything. And, yeah. and I think that that mm-hmm. kitchen sink approach is very much in the filmmaking as well. Now, I call. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just just piggybacking on that this the the sort of classicism of the structure is really striking the fact that it's you know three nights three partners a couple of characters who re- revisit the story on each of the three nights uh and it's it feels like almost like shakespearean or maybe like like dickens like a christmas carol like mm. and it 
<laughs> I think that that's uh, it, it. You're right. It's it's sort of all replicated within the micro structures of the editing, and it's like that. It just feels like a very consistent movie, like a sort of coherent text. Yeah, and like you know, another thing that helps to pull you along is the fact that like it begins with him saying like you know all the pieces are in place for a long weekend. Right. Like, oh, okay. Like three days. So I got to, and then you've got, you, you know, that you're tracking through that. And I love that, uh, Tom Sizemore is his final, his, his end mm-hmm. boss. It's his nemesis. Yeah. His former after partner. An, after an early appearance and you're like, Oh God, I hope I don't see that guy. Oh, oh no. <laughs> What's the thing he says about his ambulance? Like uh, she, she will not die. And I respect that. Yeah. Yeah. It was something. It was something even weirdly darker. Um, no, that, that's that's basically mm. what what he says about about the ambulance. Yeah. yeah okay. He, so he, I found I found the quote. It's this old bus is a warrior, Frank. I have tried to kill yes. her, but she will not die. I have a great respect <laughs> for that. And it just I love the fact that like Frank isn't alone in being destroyed by his job and this particular neighborhood. Um, well, I, I think I think you know it has to be said that uh, look, I, I don't know that many EMS workers, but I do know that's that's a stepping stone to becoming a firefighter for a lot of people. But a lot of people just end up being EMS workers, and it is a job that will chew you up and spit you out. Um, it is it is not uncommon to see people just just quit um, in in this particular field. Because you have to have a certain level of of sense of humor, dark sense of humor about what you're doing day to day. Because, you know, Nicolas Cage has a spiel in the middle of this film where he basically mentions that they've they've trained him so that he can do basically similar to what a doctor can do you know, perform triage basically, but without the use of the walls and things like that. So he's got to, he's got to make it work wherever he's at, right? He's got a go bag with him. He's got a stretcher. He's got other various tools, but he doesn't have everything. Right. And so he mentions that they did all this training with him and he uses maybe 10% of it. You know, the rest is just like he doesn't know what the fuck to do because either the person is dead, dead by the time they get there, or there's just not a whole lot that they're going to be able to do anyways. Yeah, he calls right? himself a grief mop. Yeah. yeah yes. Great line. And, and, Such and a I good think, line. Again, I, I, write I it on that, my family crest of arms. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I think I think that's that's kind of where you have to understand like this is a line of work that that breeds these kind of people a lot of times um you you will not find a lot of quote unquote normal people <laughs> that that work this job because it's incredibly difficult and it's incredibly stressful and you know he mentions it in the film which i, I feel like is the bit of you know kind of goes against the nihilism grain but you know he mentions you have a lot of really shitty days, but then you save somebody's life and it, it, everything is just a glow, you know? Yeah. And the glow gets you through the next days or until yeah. the next good thing. Yeah. Which is not great when you haven't saved someone for three months. Sure. Yeah. 
<laughs> when when you go on a on a losing streak. I mean, it, it's just like betting or anything else like that where there's streaks involved, right? And you know, you you hit that high, and that high is just what you end up chasing the entire time. Um, you know, th- th- there's a lot of things like this where it kind of you know can be melded into gambling. It can be melded into drugs, I guess. Uh, it can be melded into war. It can be melded into all sorts of different kind of things. But yeah, this this is definitely something where they're they're chasing that that bright spot in a very very dark profession. I feel yeah, like I, the Maddie, please go ahead. <laughs> no, 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 go on. I hadn't formed my thought yet. <laughs> I was just going to say uh, to briefly add to what you're saying, Bill. I think that the weird contradiction, like, like you're absolutely right about that that spiel, and and you know, like uh, to speak of another great line, my, my favorite line was, uh, "Does everybody you meet just spill their guts on you?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which <laughs> that was my favorite line. But I, along those, uh, uh, along that train of thought, I do think uh, an interesting contradiction about that is that he is someone who's very intimately going at that emergency room. You notice that whoever his partner is, he's the one who's taking the stretcher there. And, you know, obviously I'm not sure how that like chain of command works or if there's always one person who is set to bring it into the emergency room. But mm-hmm. either way, I did I, I was really struck by that. And and it's partly, you know, a, a filming technique because they get sure. all this wonderful, uh, you know, you get Noel who's just like, give me some water, which then becomes, you know, a great r- running, incredibly dark joke. <laughs> um, but like, I, I, I kind of loved how every time he brought someone in, you're not only getting like the rapport of like, uh, you know, are you fucking kidding me? You bring this guy again. But also mm-hmm. he does know what the problem is sometimes. And he has like, uh, he will go on and on about what that person is experiencing, like especially with Mary's father. Like he diagnoses him with something possible and mentions it to the doctor. And, you know, they're not really listening to him, but he does in his own way, like have that like he does show those skills over and over. Like he goes beyond the uh, the needs of duty, mm-hmm. but he is also repressing everything. So well, it's it's weird. That gets to kind of the tragedy of his character because he's kind of impotent. Like he 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 has the knowledge of a doctor and the knowledge of what could and should be done, but can't be the one to do it. And so that's why he's left to be just a grief mob. Like his function is to absorb the horror and like be there for the families and give, you know, maybe give the families some answers, probably not just probably just be on the receiving end of their grief. And like, that's, you know, doctors death too, but this is a different ball game. That's what he does basically in the, in the first thing when he meets Mary's is like, they're, the guy is dead. He's making a show of trying to help. And he's like, oh, yeah, turn on some music he likes. I think that it helps. Just trying to give him something to do. And then the, the guy comes back and he has no idea what to do with it. <laughs> it's amazing. Oh my God. And the entire movie well, is him coming to the realization that he has to kill this man. Well, the, the, the other thing that I love mm-hmm. about that sequence is they just performed kind of a, a, a miracle, right? They brought this guy back and, and both, you know, both of them had pretty much given up. Mm-hmm. And they literally got the com- doctor to code him. Like he was, yeah, it, he was his, officially his, dead. Yeah. The, the, his partner comes back and he's like, 
he's alive? Are you <laughs> fucking kidding me? Like he's he's mad about it. He's like, fuck this, man. And You're the, doing the paperwork. And, right, and the like, doctor is okay. just like, uh, you know, oh, I hate coding people over the phone. Like I thought this guy was dead. Like I had already written off this part of my night. Yeah. It's 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 one of those things. And and the fact that like they keep coming back to this one uh hospital. Um, you know, clearly they don't have to necessarily come back to this one. They they never actually show a different hospital. Um, they do mention that there are other hospital possibilities. Um, but I, I love the fact that the first time they come in, they're just like, no, 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 no. We are full. We are absolutely full. Like we cannot handle any more people. And he's just like, well, yeah, I'm here. So, you know, what are you going to do? The family's right behind me. Like you can't, you can't just send me back out there. So yeah, it's, it's fascinating to see all the little nuances of like how they deal with the day to day, because, you know, there's, there's characters, there's people that they keep bringing in. And I love the, it, I guess she is a doctor, but she she doesn't seem to be performing very much uh, doctorly duties except lecturing the patient. Oh, she's like the triage nurse. Mary Beth Hurt yeah. is that? So, yeah. She's she's so good. Like she just she just sitting there just telling people <laughs> where they fucked up in their life and just being like, "Please get your ass out of here. Here's your pills. Like I don't want to ever see you again." And she just knows that she's going to see him in two weeks. You know, she's just like, okay, so like, you, you know, you, you, you got drunk and you, know, you fell down and we're going to send you out and you're going to get drunk again. You know, mm-hmm. why should we care? Like, why should we put all this time into fixing you? Well, but, but even, even the fact that like when the guy that that's always drunk, that like smells really bad, Mr. O. Oh. She comes right out and she's like, oh, come on in. We're going to give you a shower. We're going to get you cleaned up. And and yeah. you just see this side of empathy from her that you're just like, wait, wait, wait. You're treating all those people like shit and you're treating the repeat offender like like he's a saint? Like, I don't know. I don't know what's going on there. Well, but, she's been you know. around long enough. I think that she she can intuit like when someone is like truly broken and someone is just a piece of piece of garbage who doesn't want to do any better mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know and i it's it's it is weird to see that because you're like oh what's this woman gonna tear into mr o about and instead she's like very empathetic towards him and you just wonder like what is his story then mm-hmm. you know because the guy who who od'd and they gave him a shot of narcon and and he came back she she's laying into him about his drug use absolutely but mr yeah. o is an inveterate drunk who's there every night and she's really nice to him so it is it's it's interesting and i love that the movie for focusing purely on Frank, you know, Uh he's in every scene, you know, is, is able to still put out things like that to really make you think about it and, um, kind of lean into the concepts that it's showing. It's, it's, it, it is, it's just like, again, that's one of the things that I love about this movie is that it it feels like people are living lives off screen. Well, the the other interesting thing about that is, you know, I'm sure there are, a lot of uh, repeat offenders and a lot of people that, you know, end up in and out, in and out, in and out. Um, You know, I I think there's been some studies about like the amount of, uh, I I don't want to get too political, but the amount of uh, healthcare resources that we actually utilize on like 
I think it's like 20 or 30% of like patients that <laughs> ends up like, like, you know, sucking in like 70% of our resources or something like that, where they're just like repeats and just like, what the hell is, and they don't have any money. And it's just like, Oh Jesus Christ. Like you guys are really hurting us. But, um, you know, I think that kind of goes back to the relatability of, of this film and of this profession in general is everybody's got kind of those repeat situations that constantly come back up in their job, you know, whether it's a repeat person, whether it's a repeat situation, something along those lines where you're just like, ah, fuck, not this again, (laughs) you know? Um, And so, yeah, you get annoyed at it and everybody does. And everybody has a little staff meeting with Aaron, (laughs) you know, (laughs) goddamn zoom calls. Um, Yeah. It's, it's just one of those things, you know Uh, I think, I think everybody can kind of relate to that kind of, repeat madness where the days start to blend together when some of those things just happen you're just like what what day is it oh it's it's tuesday especially in quarantine yes yeah (laughs) yeah oh boy what what should we do to tomorrow pinky (laughs) try and take over the world first of all pinky asked the brain that brain brain yes sorry pinky's not getting to make any choices he's not the one setting the schedule i have to say it was pretty jarring um when you know when they first pick up mr o you know, I probably should have expected, you know, the acidic humor, but it was still a little jarry when they first get him and they're like, fuck, this guy smells. And, you know, they have their head out the window and it's just <laughs> it's not the it's not the normal portrayal you get of it. And I think that further underlines kind of what Bill, what, you, what you're getting into is that like a, a lot of these people <laughs> are paying their dues, you know, to get in the next rung of the ladder and. Frank was never even thinking about the next rung at the ladder. You know, Mm -hmm. you hear Goodman's character talk about how he wants to be the one calling the shots. You know, uh, Bing Rams has been in in it a while, but it's you can tell it's very much something that he does, gets in and gets out. And, you know, well, Sizemore's, you know, past the point of no return. But even still, I I think it's really fascinating how much you get that dichotomy between in the hospital and out of the hospital, uh, between people who are just, you know, doing what they can and the people who feel, you know, you know, the, the basic Calvinist belief that no matter what you do, you're always you're always destined to suffer. So I, I think I, I think that's that's really powerful that it's able to constantly contradict that. And and that's why I think this stays away from being didactic despite that narration, which I which I really want to talk about with you guys. I, I'm curious, like what did you guys make of the narration? I kind of loved it, actually. I uh, it. I think it's that's the key to our appreciation of Nick Cage's character. Like I, I just because you you mentioned uh, or somebody mentioned Frank's warmth and sort of the the strange combination of warmth and despair in his character, and I think that I'm not sure we get that without the narration. Like in, in the same in the same way i think he's kind of um by hearing his internal monologue which is so obsessive and so 
repetitive and so sort of ruminating, we see that he feels sort of stuck in this limbo because it's a calling for him. It's, you know, he hates this job and he knows that it's eating away at him, but it also, he, he can't, he can't get away from it because he just feels this sort of vocational compulsion to do it. And I think that, I mean, you know, Scorsese is a great filmmaker. I'm sure he would find ways of approaching that without using the voiceover, but I think that it was very effective at doing that personally. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the issue is that like, this is three days and it's in the middle of a dry spell for him. And clearly he's under a lot of stress. And so I think that you're right. The, the way that he delivers the voiceover and, you know, clearly the content of what he's saying helps to let you know that he is not just a man who is having a bad time, but he is actually <laughs> suffering under the fact that like he hasn't saved anyone. And he feel he's worried that like this thing that he feels called to do, he suddenly can't do anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it, it lets you know that he's not a border, a borderline, a true psychopath, like um, Tom Sizemore, who his character, I believe mm-hmm. is also just named Tom, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I always love that. Um, easy, easy, easy. Yeah, easy room. But oh, then you also second guess yourself. You're like, oh, oh it, can't, yeah. it can't be Tom. It's got to be Tim or Ron or something. But no, Tom yeah. Wolves, um, who we last see in the movie taking a bat to the ambulance <laughs> for no fucking reason. But I that's just such a great indelible image of Nicolas Cage walking out of the hospital and just Tom Sizemore going to town. <laughs> On this well, ambulance with all the fury and rage that you assume Tom Sizemore goes after everything in his life. <laughs> I, I I think I think one of my most favorite sequences is when they do get into that accident, which is a hell of a sequence, mm-hmm. by the way. Uh, when they get into that accident, Cage climbs out of the vehicle laughing, yelling at his partner, saying that he'll never let him do it again, and then just fucking walks away. <laughs> and you're just like, hold on, hold on, there's there's got to be some accountability going <laughs> <Yes>. on here. <laughs> and and well, I guess Nick Cage is just like, fuck it, he's going to take the rap for this one. Well, also, I, the, I think it. the next day, his his dispatcher, yes. or his guy is like, I gotta, you got to fill this paperwork, but really, I just need you to get in the bus and go out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 no. He, you know, which he, again... He, in a, in a true noir, it would be like, you know, you got you to make an account for what happened last night when you were on the streets with Walensky. And instead, it's just like, yeah, I don't care. Just, you know, go out, Frank. Go out. You're a great guy. I love you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, it's definitely one of those jobs where uh, I'm sure the amount of people they need versus the amount of resources they have are, are always going to be, you know, in, in opposition. Oh, absolutely. And, and once again, something that's being highlighted by the, the coronavirus outbreak is just like, oh, we did not have enough people to deal with this. No. Um, um, and it's just that's like it's when he's like, you know, I, I'll fire you. Another time. You know what? Even better. I'm just going to get you more sick days so you can take some more sick days, <laughs> but you're still technically on the payroll. And it's like, yeah. It's like when I tried to quit my job and suddenly they were like, no, no, like stay and did all this other stuff. And I was like, oh, is this like what being appreciated feels like? <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird. Um, I think I, I can't remember what what it might have been a movie. It might have been something what a uh, something I had heard from. I guess I'll give some background. Uh, I actually trained to become a firefighter for a little while. Um, I was taking tests and stuff like that. Um, I got far along on a couple of them. Uh, But anyways, um, 
I had heard that when you are a firefighter or even an EMS worker, um, oftentimes it is the person you're dealing with worst day of their entire life. Mm -hmm. But for you, it's just another day. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting to kind of think about how much grief and how much stuff that they kind of deal with on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, for, for Frank, he's just trying to get through the weekend. That's all, that's all he wants, right? He just wants to get some sleep on the other end. He doesn't want, you know, a bunch of really bad calls. He wants some easy calls, some things where, you know, they arrive and the person's already dead or something along those lines, you know, and, and that's what he's looking for. Um, but yeah, it, it, I, I was always struck by that that quote, and I can't remember where it came from. But you know, it's it's often the worst, you know, the the worst day of that person's life, and it's just another day for you. And it's 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 really sad, but it's also you know you you start having empathy for the way that some of the uh, first responders kind of react to certain situations where they're kind of nonplussed and they're just kind of like, eh, well, okay. that's the thing about like, you know, this job or being a cop, you know, where it's, it's like, it is that you, you, you were, you were brought in because someone is having a horrible time, you know? Yes. And you, on the other hand, you, this is like the sixth one of these that you've had to deal with today. Mm-hmm. So you have to be able to not turn off entirely, but like compartmentalize because you're, <laughs> now going to see more murders than any one person probably will ever see in their life, even a serial killer. Like, it's just the way that the world works. Yeah. And um, I kind of love that this movie... So, like, I have been uh, this, I have been watching, like, a lot of random television uh, since the quarantine started, and I've watched a couple co- or, um, doctor shows. And I, you don't get characters like those in Bringing Out the Dead... <laughs> In uh, in most doctor fiction, um, it's always like some idealist, someone who's like tired of the hospital bureaucracy and like just wants to help people. And I feel like seeing this like burnout but still doing their best type of thing almost is a more empathetic portrayal than what you'd get in something like uh, Royal Pains or ER or something. You know, it's just I I like that the movie is observing these like breakdowns from everyone i think like gris is the most well-adjusted character in the movie and (laughs) um every time i see this movie he says don't make me take off my sunglasses i like (laughs) i clap and giggle with glee because it's just Uh, the best thing ever Um, that's such a great line and I, I just, it's it's great to watch and to see it. I think that observing, like, um, when a movie observes people in these kinds of situations and doesn't feel as though it's judging them, that's, like, the greatest empathetic gift that you can give. Because, especially now when it's like, oh, EMTs and nurses and doctors are heroes, and it's like, so now, great, you've been branded a hero, and if you do anything off script, you've just yeah. betrayed the title that you've been given. But it's like, Nicolas Cage in this movie is still a hero in spite of the fact that he's having a nervous breakdown and is seeing ghosts. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. He's like everyone, all of the doctors in this movie are cranky and frustrated and it's like they're all... The, the heroism is because of that, not in spite of it, yeah. I guess, is, is sort of what you take away from this movie. Absolutely. Um, there was a... The show Homicide Life on the Street 
has an episode um, that that focuses a little more on the victim's family than than most of them did. I think actually Robin Williams played the uh, the husband whose wife was murdered in front of him, and he he walks in on the detectives talking about the interview that he gave after his wife was murdered, and the detective is like. Of course, you know, the, the gun was probably like a 35 millimeter, but by the time this guy was done talking about it, it sounded like it was one of the canyon, cannons at Fort McHenry. You know, <laughs> guy, you know, can't like tell me anything about his, uh, the assailants to save his life. I'm going to rack up so much fucking overtime on this thing. <laughs> and Robin Williams is like horrified to hear this and thinks that the guy isn't taking his case seriously. And the, the lieutenant has to say, like, you don't understand this job. Like, these people have to act in a way that is sometimes repellent to the public, you know, in order to get through the day because you're not his first murder this week. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, like seeing that, you know, seeing that darker side helps to like make a more rounded and empathetic understanding of what these people are going through. And that's how you really get to the end of this movie where he ends up, uh, you know, helping Mary's father to die and seeing it as a victory because the whole movie has been like him trying to come to accept that like there is a line between being alive and actually like living and that this man, mm-hmm. you know, doesn't want to be on the wrong side of that line. What a vivid or- image too of him using the, the ventilator and putting yes. it on his, his face mm-hmm. too. Is that, am I, am I wrong? Did that same thing happen in before the devil knows you're dead? Um, I think so. I think that might be a spoiler. Albert Finney does that, right? Yeah, it's probably a spoiler, and I apologize. That's that's a really good film. Live on the internet, Brian spoiled. <laughs> oh no! Of all the things I could be canceled for, spoiling Sidney Lumet's last movie, which came out twelve years ago. Yeah, it's been a while. Now I have to look this up. Um, but yeah, that's that's a great... I mean, there's so many... Uh, oh, it's 13 years ago. Um, <laughs> that's so oh, many great indelible images in this movie. Just the way that, you know, Bill even talking about Nicolas Cage climbing out of the, the uh, toppled over ambulance. ambulance. You know, the way the camera spins, mm-hmm. which is just... It's, it's like at once in time and at odds with him regaining his equilibrium. It's just, oh, there's so much in this movie that's great. I just want to watch it again. We haven't even talked about the drug dealer getting impaled. I know. uh, Which is, (laughs) I I have been in the back of my mind this entire time thinking about, when are we going to talk about that guy (laughs) and that whole scene and his monologue about how much he loves the city of New York Mm -hmm. (laughs) with the fireworks. Before we get to that, though, I think we, I I, I think the red, if you want to talk about something you know, to to take your word from earlier, Maddie, uh, coherent. I think the red death and the size stuff is the most at odds. That doesn't mean it's not tremendously entertaining right. and satisfying in its own way, but it is something that does feel almost, you know, transported from another movie at, at times. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, and yeah. but it works somehow, nonetheless. And I don't. I sure. <laughs> It's almost, uh, I don't know, that feels like the one, I haven't read the novel, but I, I wonder, I, I have to assume that those elements are both taken from the novel, and they both sort of feel like concessions to 
the earlier version of the text that it's like, well, maybe, you know, maybe these things don't fit in this movie, but they are doing, you know, to honor the vision of the guy who wrote the novel. I'm going to, I don't know. I don't know. It's a, it's a good point. It is almost a callback to like a more archetypal New York. Mm-hmm. Like, like there is something, you know, I, I, I don't want to jump to like retrograde, but there is something more, you know, even the fact it's called Red Death, the fact that it's like, you know, uh, a glass vial with a skull on it. And like, it's, yeah, it's pretty operatic in terms well, of the, imagery. Wasn't the, um, the, so when a, when a, this, this might be apocryphal, but it is something that I have heard and I've heard it from people who worked. Sure. Drugs. But like when a, when a, you, you would think that if you buy heroin from someone and then you die, that when people learned who sold you that heroin, they would not buy from them. But the opposite is, in <laughs> fact, true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> people are like, oh, you know, Joey slammed junk up his arm every day and he OD'd on the stuff that he brought from Chris. Chris That's must have some stuff. great shit. <laughs> yep. You know, and so you go and you buy it because uh, unfortunately, if it's good enough to kill you, it's pretty righteous high, probably. <laughs> I mean, that, that is that is a <laughs> that is a a risk that you are taking. <laughs> yes, I think that's kind of strange about Psy too, because it it's not until you know he takes the hallucinogen that oh wow I sounded so old saying that <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't remember what drug it was that's why I said that but uh, I, I did think it's interesting that when he first goes there we kind of know it's a drug house and everything uh, you know he's following Mary and everything but I I think that that you know it has the atmosphere of an opium den but there's mm-hmm. something weirdly wholesome about it for the, the first fish. couple minutes yeah. it's a very safe space it's very much like a safe space before we had safe spaces it's very comforting really if you think about it shooting galleries were indeed the first safe space <laughs> You're not passing out on the street corner. We've got 17 dirty mattresses that you could pass out on. A nice little aquarium. Yeah, no, I mean, he. if if I were to ever have a crippling drug addiction, um, I would want him to be my dealer. And I would pay, you know, a couple bucks to be able to pass out for a few hours in his back room. Sai <laughs> is a good man. Uh, because, again, he is played by C- Cliff Curtis, who, uh, if if I could cast my life, I would want to be my best friend. <laughs> he's just like he's so oddly angelic too like it's not just the yeah like safe is, is so perfect well, Nicholas Cage picks up Mary and runs out and in like you know a 70s movie it would be like the pimp would chase them down or something but Sai yeah. is just like no just let him go like he's fine he's cool like don't worry about it I mean he's a little annoyed when he first starts like growling like doing his best caveman you're having growl. a paradoxical reaction <laughs> Yeah, he's like, can you not do that? You can leave. It's it's cool, but like, don't don't yell and shit. <laughs> and then uh, later on, he jumps off and is impaled, and uh, Frank gets to save yeah. him. Which I, I love. I love a couple of things about that. Um, first, there's his his speech about the city as the sparks are flying and then turn into fireworks, which is sure exactly the kind of over-the-top operatic nonsense that i want from paul schrader and martin scorsese um (laughs) but then i also love that frank frank saves him like this is the thing that pulls him out of his dry spell 
that and uh, killing uh, Mary's father. But I love that then we see him in the emergency room and they're like, yeah, um, you know, you'll probably get to the OR later today. And he's just there still with the fence in him. <laughs> it's like he has been saved. He will survive. But, you know, the staggering bureaucracy of this place is still going to keep him on a bed in the middle of a hallway with a fence sticking out of him. I still don't understand how he will survive once the fence is taken out. <laughs> well, it looked like it was going through his side. So while I'm sure that it's probably perforated something, you know, you, you, you stop the bleeding, you sew everything up. Maybe he loses a kidney. I don't know. People survive shit like that. It's weird. And again, uh, you know, this is a uh, Brian Rowan's helpful corner uh, where I give out some good advice that you might not know. If you ever are perforated, <laughs> do not remove the object perforating you until you are in the emergency room and let the doctors do it. Because paradoxically, it is better to keep it in because odds are it is the only thing keeping you from bleeding out. But if it's an arrow or something, aren't you supposed to pull off the end or something? You could you so you can snap <laughs> off the the shaft of the arrow so that you don't accidentally hit it on something. Okay. But be aware that arrows are almost specifically designed so that if you pull them out, they cause more damage. That's why they have that triangular shape. So in oh. in most cases, what you actually want to do is try to push it through. Fuck. Sorry, I don't think you have a curse on here. <laughs> yeah, no, Brian, why do you know this? <laughs> Let me tell you about gunshot wounds. Every oh, time that they take no. a bullet out of someone in a movie, they are putting that person's life in danger. <laughs> Every time that you see people like, like, oh, we got to get the bullet out or he's going to die. The bullet's already in there. The bullet's already done all the damage it can do. Unless it's close to a major organ and may migrate, it doesn't really matter. The bullet is fired. It heats to a degree that it becomes sterile. What you have to do is staunch whatever bleeding is happening on the inside. But you can leave the bullet in. Don't just cut him open and start digging around more. Wow. Anyway. We should all just leave this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is why we need we need to have some people in the live chat. Uh, because now I can just tell you all your different first aid needs for various forms of violence. Um. Great. But yes, uh so yeah, that uh that's that's that. Um anything else to talk about uh with Cliff Curtis hanging over the uh the building? I know uh Maddie that you had said at some point like it's crazy that we haven't talked about that. <laughs> yeah, I just think that's the set piece of the movie, just in terms of I mean spectacle wise. I don't know that it's necessarily speaks for the movie, but um just the, them having that conversation while he's just suspended over the city of New York and, and, uh, you know, the, the size kind of chill about it. And like, um, Frank is, uh, not, not so much chill as, as just in the flow of it. And, uh, I don't know. I just, I, I thought it was mesmerizing. I just wanted to acknowledge its existence more than anything else. <laughs> I love I love how much like how many people are actually up there and how many people are dealing with the situation like and they're like clipping into the uh the the brick siding 
as if that's like a good actual place to to clip into. Like, I don't know if you know anything about siding, but siding is called siding for a reason. It is not the structure of the building. And so like, that's just a facade. <laughs> I'm just like, okay, hold on here. Like if you, if you really tie into that, uh, it might just come right out. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, but no, like they were very involved in like clipping in. And then I love the fact that like they they have this whole situation and, and you're thinking, oh, they're only cutting one side. So I guess it's OK because they seem like professionals. Right. And then they cut that one side and all of a sudden he almost dies. And you're like, oh, they didn't know what the fuck they were doing at all. And then one of the guys is like, did you clip him in? And he's like, I thought you clipped him in. And he's like, oh, I could, man. I have watched this movie countless times, which, again, lets you know something about my mental state. Um, and I still don't know if those guys are, like, earnestly like, oh, we forgot to clip in the dude who's impaled. Or if they're just like, you're a fucking drug dealer. Like, you're lucky that yeah, we're even sure. here right now. Sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm I'm still unsure about that as well, but I I'm, I just found that hilarious. And I love that at, at the very least they should have clipped in Nick Cage, right? Which they did. <laughs> no, I, I thought they didn't. No, he. That's the only reason he doesn't fall. Is they they say like, th- are you happy I, that we clipped you in, Frank? And then Cy is like, oh, like you know, what about me? And they're like, oh, did okay. you clip him in? I didn't clip him in. Like, ah. Okay, okay. I also All love right. that the um the the Hasidic Jews who uh, apparently gave a lot of money for like new trucks and stuff are now because <laughs> of that allowed to work the spotlights. Yes, <laughs> that's right. They get a kick out of it. Oh yes. man, and the Filipino nun, you know, mm-hmm. oh Rapping. my god, the best. <laughs> Again, that's the New York that I miss yeah. when I think of New York. Yeah. Maddie, as our current New Yorker, d- does this reflect your experience of New York? <laughs> um, I mean, like, I don't know that I would say it reflects my experience, but it definitely gets at the feeling of wandering around like Midtown or other parts of Manhattan uh, in the middle of the night and you're kind of uh, out of it. And it's that's what the city looks like. That's what it feels like. That's what it like, like walking past, like people going into their walk up apartments you know on busy streets it's just like it gets at the texture of it really well and uh yeah i i it definitely i've I've had some late nights in the er a couple of times uh in my time in new york and it's very like that was like you know sort of triggering for me seeing those scenes because it's like oh my god it's this is exactly what it's like and it's it's these these intense you know urban er's are just like this insane universe that you just sort of get thrust into when you're in a vulnerable spot in your own life. And I don't know, I, I found it to be sort of startlingly true to life. Um, yeah. Yeah, I do. So. I do. There's a part of me that loves the fact that like, this appears to be hell's kitchen. I think they mentioned like it's on the West side and um, like I was there, like, I don't know, it was two years ago, but like it is now like super expensive, multi-million dollar high rises and like wine and cheese shops. And I'm just like, yeah. man, look what they did to hell's kitchen. <laughs> that's true true. it's not it's not exactly true to the current historical moment in new york city but there are parts of new york that still you still get some of that you still get those uh, those narrow streets that are just lined with prostitutes yeah well you get the wrapping nun maybe you get you get wrapping nun 
<laughs> but an actually rapping nun or the, the nun with the megaphone? <laughs> um, She's kind of got like a slam poetry kind of yeah. thing going on. Yes. Yes. Yeah. All right. That's a, a real, that's a real thing. If I, um, if I, if I were a better host, I would have found a clip of the, the, the nun so that we could just play it right now to relive that moment. <laughs> Um, that's the that's the other thing. The movie is so packed with images and stuff like that that like I forget things that happen. Um, even though again I have watched this movie probably more than most people would ever want to or could ever want to watch this movie. And so like when the when the slam poetry nun came out, I was like, oh right, I completely <laughs> forgot about her. But um, yeah, I would I would join her church. We haven't talked about Rosa at all, who is the the ghost that haunts this entire movie. Yes. Um, she along. So like like I was saying, I wish certain things were a little neater. I like that she is included. I like that she is um like a personification of his sense of. Of like loss and kind of like a, a an anchor point for his grief. I do feel like similar to the Red Death thing, like maybe in a in a more conventional movie, she would have been tied in a little more. He does have the flashback during the dream, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Like right after, yeah, right after the hands are coming up from the, from the, uh, sorry, from the floor, which is, you know, one a great moment. <laughs> yeah, it's a great moment. But yeah, I was, I was a little confused about what exactly happened with it. I, I think it's just I'm conditioned to expect something so when something is considered so pivotal like i'm just conditioned to expect this certain uh, sob story is condescending but just like something that seemed a lot more extreme than what it is like i kind of liked how minor it was compared to everything like she wasn't a victim of violence or anything she just had an asthma attack and he couldn't uh he couldn't intubate her i think correctly he kept uh going down the wrong tube literally and yeah. he just, you know, that, that, uh, that those like three fuck ups were enough to like take her too far and she died. But that's, that's the thing about Scorsese is, you know, like as, as much as, you know, I'm not going to say something as wide ranging about his entire career. I'll just say that I, I think there's a lot of small moments in this. The big one I've seen a lot of people point out, and it was probably my favorite moment in the movie, is just when Mary and Frank are in the back of the ambulance. And it's it's they're completely quiet, but they're just both content in that moment. And and just in, in terms of how he interacts with her, how he interacts with Mary's mom, like all of those like show a sense of a sense of kindness that like just feels totally uh, in a, in a good way, like out of sync with, with reality in every other, every other way. Oh my, I, I just realized there are probably totally people who have theories that huge parts of this movie don't exist. <laughs> Oh, I mean, yeah, like people would be like, oh, after the crash, he died and everything is. Oh, Jesus. Mary's not real. Da, 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 da. <laughs> Mary is Rosa. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's yeah, it's precisely oh, no. the kind of bullshit that we don't want. Um, <laughs> if you have any fan theories about bringing out the dead, I don't think this movie is popular enough to have fan theories. <laughs> oh, Brian. <laughs> the Scorsese fanboys out here, you know, just writing about this movie like it's the next batman that nolan did um martin scorsese who apparently cannot get 200 million dollars to make his next movie which is 
fury infuriating fury making uh killers of the flower moon we'll uh, have to hope that that ends up coming through 200 um, million for a western is genuinely a lot though even for confusing even um, for scorsese <laughs> I do wonder, I would love to get a breakdown of the uh, the budgeting and to try to figure out how they came to that number. I'm curious what Django costs, for instance. Yeah, I don't know. Um, that's a very good question. I have no idea. Um, like, the average minute made sense, because it's like, oh, yeah. well, you know, we gotta, we gotta de-age all these people and all this other stuff. I do not know how Killers of the Flower Moon gets that high. They made... Another David, another movie based on a book by David Grant. I mean, The Lost City of Zed happened. You know, that was $200 million probably. Oh, that's the same, that's the same author? Yes. Okay. Interesting. Quite so. Um, so let's, uh, let's wrap sure. up. Sure. Uh, let's, uh, does it, I, part of me wants to say like, what's, what is your favorite indelible moment from this movie just as a way to kind of bring us around. So, but my problem is that upon asking that, I have no actual answer because there's so much of it that I love. But I'll do it anyway. Uh, so let's everyone go around the horn and say what their favorite moment, their, the thing that will stick with them the longest is from this movie. Bill Graham, let's start with you. <laughs> hmm. I don't, I don't know. It, it's got to be a... Uh, eh, fuck it. I, I'll just go with what I already said. It's, it's him walking, walking away from the crash. I think, I think that's just absolutely hilarious and, and so odd and so just on the nose, but I love it. All right. Michael Snydell. Yeah. I, I think it's a lot of the scenes with, with Mary. Uh, I, I, I think especially cause I mean, we already spoke about the, about size place, but I really like that it pushes away from like obvious manic pixie dream girl territory. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, it, like it could, I, I saw it going down a territory and I, I like that it continues to kind of, uh, yeah, it's, it make her character a little bit more hard scrabble. I, I like the way that she's annoyed at first when he falls asleep on the couch. Like ju- just the fact that she's not as benevolent, not benevolent. Uh, yeah, just, it, it, I guess an alcohol. She doesn't acquiesce. No, no, she, she's not there as a, as a proper or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And, I, I just was consistently impressed with her characterization. All right. Maddie, what's your favorite scene? I I feel like we've already covered a lot of the big ones, but one thing that I don't think we've mentioned was um, the man who they pick up at one point. Uh, I think it might be on the second night. It's, it's I can't remember now which night it is, but um, he has... Uh, tried to kill himself and failed and we actually we did talk about this moment yeah. but we didn't talk about the part where uh frank is talking about bringing him into the hospital and how and reassures him that when they get to the hospital they will uh, help him to kill himself in a way that is more comfortable oh, yeah. or, um luxurious than the conditions in which he would be dying on the street and he sort of coaxes this man to come with him to the hospital, obviously lying because they're going to, you know, they're not going to give him a, a nice big comfy room in which to kill himself. But <laughs> it's just like a very, it's a funny moment and it's a startling moment. And it just sort of stopped me in my tracks as I was watching it. And um, I think that's one that will stick with me. I also love in that scene, Tom Sizemore putting the, uh, 
the electrode on his head and saying like, you know, look in the mirror every hour. If it turns green, you must seek medical attention. (laughs) Um, Saying that like it was from NASA and it was only just now coming to market. Yes. (laughs) I think that my favorite uh, will probably still be the I be banging resurrection scene. (laughs) Just because I love some Ving Rhames and I love the character of Marcus in this. And uh, that whole the whole thing with just like the the absurdity of like everyone just saying like that, that's his name it's what we call him, and then that kid at the end saying like man you guys are good, <laughs> it's just so great and it it again highlights the absurdity and the uh, the empathy of of this movie towards its characters. So that is that we have now fully reviewed bringing out the dead uh, again. This is a 1999 movie from director Martin Scorsese. It is now available on Amazon Prime and Canopy. So check it out if you haven't already, which is weird because you've listened to this whole podcast, apparently. <laughs> so see it. Let us know what you think. Again, reach out on Twitter at Film Stage Show, Facebook, The Film Stage Show, or email us podcast at filmstage.com. How we, many listeners are we at? Oh, I don't know. Probably none. Uh, it looks like two. I don't know who you are, but thank you. <laughs> we Next, lost the listener. <laughs> I mean, it's probably fluctuated throughout. Uh, it looks like at our peak, we had four people, which is more than I would have expected. Uh, next time, we'll have to actually like... We, we did not do any advertising because we thought this would fall apart immediately. <laughs> right, so. But it, it turned out pretty okay. I mean, yeah. you know, I don't know. It's there. It's working. We, we we are truly pushing that MacBook Pro to its to its limits. I'm sure. <laughs> um, so next time we'll have to actually like let people know when it's happening and try to drum up some interest for it. Uh, because again, we would really like to uh, to be able to interact with people in a more meaningful way as we all deal with quarantine and self isolation in our own ways. Speaking of dealing with quarantine and self isolation, movie. Every day, a brand new film selected just for you. It's like a friend comes over with a DVD from that video store that you always say you're going to visit, but you never do. And he forces <laughs> you to watch it. Um, so check out movie. You can watch it on your smart TV, your laptop, your mobile device. Um, they've got double bills going on. Uh, they've got their undiscovered uh, series going on. Their vulgar disruptor, the trauma, <laughs> trauma restored. And again, Southland Tales is on there as well. I am still planning on watching Southland Tales. I just don't have the time or the energy for that clearly insane looking movie. Um, I, I want to, sorry, I want to give a quick shout out. So there are only a few days left. So if you happen to watch it, if you happen to listen to this podcast in the next two days, I don't even know when this podcast is going out. I have heard a lot of people uh, who are very excited about Yuzo Kawashima, uh, who is very hard to watch his films. Um, and his most widely known film called Sun in the Last Days of the Shogunate, Shogunate. Shogunate, Shogunate. Um, is uh, available on movie right now. And I've, I've heard raves for that one. So I know there's only a few days left for that, but if you get a chance, uh, I've heard a lot of people talking about that one and it might be something uh, you want to check out. See, if you were listening live right now and you heard that <laughs> you could do it immediately instead of having to wait for me to cut and edit and equalize this whole thing. Anyway, um, yes. So again, that's mubi.com slash film stage. Uh, what are we talking about next week, Michael? Um, I have no idea. There are <laughs> movies coming out. Um, you know, 
Um, I don't know. We we have <laughs> talked before about uh, true history of the Kelly gang, so that might be something coming up. Uh, we, we have some more. Um, sorry, we have some more Patreon requests, so those might be coming. Uh, things are going on behind the scenes. We're just kind of trying to figure out scheduling and coordinating and things like that. Uh, yeah, the podcast is not going to stop. Uh, yeah, send us recommendations for what you want us to talk about. <laughs> I don't know. Michael, slowly going insane. All right. Well, yeah, uh, watch our feeds and you will see what is coming up next. Um, we blasted out the fact that we were doing Bringing Out the Dead a couple days ago. Which again, people really responded to that because apparently no one even knew this movie existed. Which was disheartening. Uh, but let's tell the fine people at home where we can be found between now and the next time. Oh, someone just joined on and is now yelling at us. Uh, apparently Django had a $100 million budget. Oh, wow. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Interesting. Only a hundred million more for Killers of the Flower Moon. Fifth Moon, Flower Moon. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) crazy. He also (laughs) he also wrote a phonetic spelling of Shogunate, so that's awesome. Um, I I had by this point stopped paying attention to the chat, so I feel I feel very bad. Uh, But thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Um, let's tell the fine people at home where we can be found between now and the next time. We will start with our guest, Maddie Whittle. I am at Maddie Whittle on Twitter, and uh, yeah, that's that's all. All right, yeah, well, you can find all of her stuff there. Bill Graham. Uh, you can find me listening to my dog snooze every day, every night, forever on Twitter Your dog at dead? Cable What the hell BFG. happened? Oh no 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 no! She, every day, she just every snores. night, forever. Yeah, she just snores <laughs> snores very loudly, and I love it. Oh. Uh, we post videos of her snoring because you know the quarantine she, is she doing can't... terrible things to people. <laughs> I'm jealous <laughs> of a dog snoring. Oh, I want a dog so bad. Right, oh, get now. a dog. Oh, why are you? Why don't you get a dog? We can't. We can't have one in our apartment, and we wouldn't want to make anybody. Or we anybody. We wouldn't want a dog to feel like it couldn't run around, and you know, the whole quarantine is not the best time to adopt a dog. I feel like it's, it's, it's probably it's a perfect time to adopt a dog because I can't imagine what shelters are like right now. Probably. Oh no! There's there's. A lot of them are like empty, like or not empty, but very low on inventory of dogs because a lot of people are just like, oh, fuck it. Like, let's let's get a dog. We're home all the time. You're home more now, so you don't have to worry about leaving the dog alone. This is actually a great time to like train a dog because you can't leave. We're we're trying to train Letty slowly but surely. She she sometimes looks at us and is just like, "Do you have an ice cube in your hand or a treat?" No. Okay. Fuck off. <laughs> I'm gonna go I, nap. I got my I got my dog. Um, it was called like an everlasting treat ball. So it's like a hard silicone ball that you put treats mm-hmm. inside so they can chew it and stuff. I threw it outside for her, and she went after it. And I was like, I just got to pay attention to where that ball is, and then I can bring it inside before it gets too dark. I turned my back Uh-oh. for 30 seconds. I cannot find that ball. She will not tell me what she did with it. Um, so that's it. I don't know. Yeah, She's not yeah. a barrier, but it just seems like she put it somewhere where she knew I couldn't find it. My, uh, cool. uh, We found out that my nine-month-old little French bulldog puppy 
um, all 26 pounds of her is apparently a voracious chewer to the point where we went through several Nyla bones and even got the quote unquote aggressive chewer Nyla bone, which she attempted to start chewing on and started putting literal dents into and getting like, like shredded it. And so now we're just (laughs) very concerned about what we can actually feed our dog. That isn't that, you know, is a standard thing that isn't actually edible because otherwise it's just like, yeah, she's just going to chew right through it. If it, if it's bone like in structure, it's gone. (laughs) All right. Michael Snydell, what about yourself? Uh, you can find me, uh, I was going to say slowly, just, just gradually, uh, but pretty fast now losing my mind on, on Twitter at at Snydell. Uh, I am still, I I have no energy for movies these days, but I am making my way through the Chucky series at the moment (laughs) in between watching, uh, some other movies, uh, true trash, Bride of Chucky (laughs) and Seed of Chucky are movies. They are cinema, cinematic art. I refuse to watch any movie called Seed of Anything. That is just <laughs> deeply gross. Uh, yeah, it's it's about as gross as you would expect, yes. All right. Uh, meanwhile, you can follow my adventures parenting, distilling, and creating hand sanitizer in the midst of a quarantine on all the social medias. I'm at Brian J. Rowan everywhere, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, blah, blah, blah. And, um... Uh, yeah, you can find all of the stuff that we've ever done over at thefilmstage.com, where every episode of this podcast resides, as well as our writing and stuff. And you can go to schmidtspirits.com to give to the GoFundMe to help us create hand sanitizer for our community. <sighs> that is it. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us, and tune in next week. I did know where to run. Yeah, that's, that's a good choice. <laughs> <laughs>